It's good to be continuing our way through the, our series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we also look forward to um, our Christmas carols in, uh, how many weeks? That's before Saturday's time. Um, no, Nancy's not here. Nancy asked a question about capacities and stuff. Our current, with anyone sitting wherever they like, is 102. If you want to visually get an idea what that looks like, we, I did a quick count um, before people went out, we had about 80, including old kids, just to, so you got a bit of an idea of where we're at, numbers-wise, in terms of what fits and doesn't. However, we can also have 100% capacity if we have allocated seats, but that's a bit hard to organise last minute for a carols event, I would imagine. Anyway, we're going to continue through Mark. We're going to come before the Lord in prayer, uh, that he would speak to us uh, through his word, that, he, uh, that we might grow and and come to love and appreciate him better through this time. Heavenly Father, uh, we've just had a week where we've heard and seen all sorts of things that have maybe unsettled us. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that as people of the King, we can have confidence at all times knowing that you're never out of control, that you've never left us. We thank you that your word, the faith that has been handed down for all time, is something that we can bank upon, is something where we can see you clearly and we can hear from you. We pray that by your spirit that we might not only hear from you, that we might be changed by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everyone loves a good bit of trivia. What happened on August 7th, sorry, August 7th, 2021? Any takers? We woke up. Ray woke up. Someone might be in a little bit of trouble if they don't speak on this one. It was your nephew's birthday. Well, that's not the answer I've got here, but it doesn't make it not a correct answer. Have you got any answer over the year? This happened. <laughs> and yes, there were two photos. I chose the one with the funnier faces just to make it a little bit more embarrassing. But if they put it on public, then, then suffer the consequences, I say. <laughs> on that day, Millie got a ring. It was a ring that's kind of points forward. It's a sign that, you know, that presumably she's going to get married to this other funny looking fella standing next to her. But then on that wedding day, she's most likely, I haven't checked, but I'm sure, she will get another ring. So the first ring looks forward to a particular day, and the second ring she gets will continue to be a sign that looks back to the day when they began and entered into that union together. Outside of a relationship with Jesus, this will be the most significant event in their life. What we're looking at here in Mark 14, verses 12 to 26 we see, again, two signs. One which points forward to the Christ event and one which points back in light of the Christ event. As in the, the Passover looks forward to the fulfilment in Christ and the Lord's Supper that looks back upon what Christ has done as well as looking to the forward. And it's no coincidence that the two things are placed together because both of these 
intentionally communicates something about who Jesus is, his salvation and our need. So today I'm going to work through the passage a little bit differently than I normally do, rather than going through sections and verses. I'm going to look through a little bit more thematically, looking at sovereignty, sacrifice, grace and being set free. Beginning with sovereignty. It's surprising when you chat with people about Jesus how many people write him off because they believe that he was defeated. That his death on a cross was an end and a failure. Now they think he got a bit of a following, but he proved to be a failure because if he was really who he said he was, he wouldn't have allowed himself to die on a Roman cross. Well, other than the fact that all of the evidence that you'd expect to see surrounding a resurrection is there to be seen, we can see very clearly Christ was not defeated. And I think anybody who tends to think this way, that Jesus was overcome by his enemies has either never read the historical accounts in the scriptures or they have read the historical accounts and believe there's nothing about truth contained within them. Because to say that Jesus was defeated, that he was overcome by his enemies, you would need to say two things. You would need to say that Jesus' life was taken from him against his will. And you would need to say that the timing and nature of his death was determined by his enemies. In a very simple reading of any of the four Gospels, you'll find that you cannot sustain either of those points. To give you just two examples from the mouth of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus gives an account the reason why he came in chapter 10, verse 45. Says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says this was the purpose for which he came was to lay down his life as a ransom for many. You cannot conclude that his life being taken on a cross was something that was done against his will. It was the purpose of his coming. And also in Mark 8.31, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He repeats this on a number of occasions. Jesus says, These things must happen. They are necessary to the plan and decree and will of God. And famously in John chapter 10, verses 17 to 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to take it back up again. Now, I'm sure there's some sceptical people who read those words and think, Well, Jesus is just preparing for the inevitable. He knows that he's got opposition, so he's just putting that out there just in case. But as we look at the days leading up to his death which we do in these chapters, verses 14 and 15, sorry, chapters 14 and 15, 
we see pretty quickly who is in control. Starting with how they came to find the upper room. As we read here from verse 12, it's now the first day of unleavened bread, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the 14th of Nisan in the Jewish calendar, a Thursday. They need to prepare for Passover. Now it was one of the most holy festivals in Judaism where Jews from all around would gather together in Jerusalem for this event. Going back to Exodus chapter 12, where we had the the different plagues while they were there in Egypt, and this was the final one, that the angel of death would come over Egypt. And whoever had slaughtered a lamb and placed the blood of that lamb on the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over, and their firstborn child, firstborn son, would not be killed. It was that plague that led to the Israelites being set free from Egypt. They decided, no, we, we don't want this God against us. Let, let's them go. That ends up being celebrated annually in this other feast connected with Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remembering a time when they didn't have time to, for yeast and for things to rise because of their quick departure and God's rescue out of slavery, out of Egypt. But Passover was something that, according to the regulations, had to be done within the city confines of Jerusalem. Now, as you can imagine, that makes things pretty busy. If every Jew from everywhere has to do this thing in the city limits of Jerusalem, it's going to get pretty busy in there. William Henderson says, and I'm not sure where his source was, that apparently it was even law at that time amongst the Jews that if you had space and people wanted to use it to celebrate Passover, you had to lend, lend them part of your house or your room uh, for them to be able to do that. But the way in which Jesus and the disciples came to this upper room looks back a little bit and reminds us of what happened back in Mark chapter 11. As Jesus sent a couple of disciples to go and get a donkey, using some descriptions of how they would know where to find it, you think, that's a bit odd. What's the odds of that actually coming to fruition? And the disciple says, and it happened exactly as Jesus said. Now when it comes to finding a place to celebrate this Passover, Jesus says, go into the city, you'll find a man carrying a jar of water, Follow him, and whatever building he goes into, say to the owner of that building, where is the guest room for, for, my, for the master's disciples to share in Passover? Now, this is Passover. We just said that every Jew from everywhere is gathered in the city of Jerusalem. And you think, based on those descriptions, there's a guy carrying a jar of water. Follow him. You think... What's the odds of actually finding where you need to go? Well, it's a little, little bit easier than it might seem. Because for a man to be carrying a water jar, which was traditionally either a woman would do that, or potentially a male or female servant. So it wasn't, it wasn't like today where you say go to Grand Central and you find someone carrying a, a water bottle, because that would make it pretty difficult. But still, it's still pretty diverse odds that you're going to come across a man carrying a jar of water. We presume this man was probably a servant in a house, 
A servant in the house of this upper room where they would gather together and share in this meal. And when he goes into the house, ask the master of that house, where is their guest room? That we may share in this meal together with the disciples. But despite the fact that this just seems so elaborate and unlikely to come to pass, just like Mark chapter 11, the disciples report and everything happened exactly as Jesus had said. Jesus is demonstrating he is in absolutely in control of every single detail. And we see that of so many of the events leading up to his death. He is not a victim of circumstances. He's demonstrating this both for the disciples so they cannot fear, know that no, this is all going according to his plan exactly as he said. But it's also for us, for the benefit for us as readers to know that he's in control. He is not being taken. The second way he shows his control over things is he knows who will betray him. As they are all gathered together there in that upper room, you think this is a great time of celebration and Jesus just busts out and says, one of you will betray me. Probably not the most positive way to start a celebration. And Jesus knows exactly who will betray him. He knows it will be Judas. He doesn't try to avoid Judas. He doesn't try to... to coerce Judas to do anything differently he simply recognises this is what's going to happen now it's not because Judas was such an obvious candidate that everyone's like ah we know it's going to be Judas we know it's Judas what we see recorded is that all of the disciples who were gathered there when they when Jesus says one of you will betray me they all say is it I none of them says ah I bet that's Judas They all presume it could be them. So even from the perspective of the twelve, there was nothing about Judas that they thought, he's clearly going to be the one. Jesus displays sovereign knowledge at every single step of his betrayal, of his arrest, his crucifixion. He also demonstrates his knowledge that his death is imminent. It's going to happen very, very soon. Verse 25, Jesus says that he will not drink the fruit of the vine again until he does so in the kingdom. He's like, I am not having wine again until I do so in the kingdom. He knows his death is happening very, very, very soon. Jesus is hardly a victim. There is not a single detail that catches him by surprise. And rather than spelling out a failed mission, Jesus' death, his punishment, his mistreatment, his abandonment, his resurrection were part of his mission. We saw in chapter 10, verse 45, it's why he came. And in chapter 8, verse 31, what he says was necessary to take place. He is in control. Secondly, of sacrifice. 
Now, at the heart of our passage is focused upon Jesus instituting what we call communion, the Lord's Supper. As much as people try to avoid the word Eucharist because they, they think that's a Catholic word, it just means to give thanks. So there's nothing scary about the word itself. And this is taking place at Passover. This is taking place in the context of a forward-looking sign and Jesus instituting the backward-looking sign in the Lord's Supper. And these two things are united in one and not just as a matter of coincidence. The context is this is taking place at Passover and at the Feast of Unleavened Bread where they are recalling and remembering how the life was saved by the blood of the Lamb. How they remember how God had rescued them out of slavery, out of Egypt, to make them a people for himself. In that setting, Jesus also introduces the Lord's Supper, the very thing that both the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread pointed to. Incidentally, even a first century Jew was of the opinion that Passover had a backward-looking perspective but also a forward-looking perspective towards the Messiah. They got that much correct. In Egypt, where they would slaughter a lamb, a male without blemish, one year of old, they'd place the blood on the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over And the firstborn son literally would be saved by the blood of the lamb. Tied with the unleavened bread where God delivered them from slavery. And even though a first century Jew believed that Passover pointed to a Messiah, they did not believe that Jesus was that Messiah. Their expectation of a Messiah was very different than what Jesus was. And therefore, they didn't link the two with Christ himself. Yet Paul, writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, has no hesitation whatsoever in calling Christ our Passover lamb, the sacrifice that would save us from certain death. So Passover was a type or was an illustration that pointed to the final and perfect sacrifice And the Lord's Supper is a sign and a symbol that points back to the sign of that final and perfect sacrifice of Christ that has already taken place. In those two elements, the bread and the wine, and if you're a teetotaler, you'll be really impressed to know that the word wine is actually not used in any context. Um, In communion, it just says the fruit of the vine or the cup, but, but it was wine, sorry. where the bread represented his body hung on the cross, tortured and crucified as a criminal, not for his sins, but on behalf of sinful mankind. And the wine, the cup, representative of his blood, not new idea to Judaism. You see throughout all the sacrifices the importance placed upon the blood for the atonement of sin, 
except with the Jewish sacrificial system, they were repeated over and over and over again. Whereas in Jesus, in his perfect and final sacrifice, as John says in 1 John 1 7, is the blood which cleanses us from all sin. Now, in these two things, there's nothing magical about either. It's not a magical bit of bread, it's not a magical cup of wine or, or fruit of the vine. But sure, anything which causes us to cast our mind upon what Christ has done on the cross is indeed a blessing. The bread doesn't become Jesus' body. The juice doesn't become his blood. Despite the fact that he uses this word, this is my body or this is my blood, you cannot help but remember that when Jesus instituted this, He's standing in front of them in his body, holding a piece of bread in a hand, which is part of his body, saying, this is my body. And it doesn't say so. It's even possible that Jesus partook of these elements as well. But Jesus highlights that his blood that was soon to be shed was a new covenant. And that his blood would be poured out for the many. Now as Jesus begins to say that his blood will be poured out for the many, he's not just talking about a quantitative thing, that, that this will be effective for a, a, a certain number or a larger number of people. He's making a statement about his identity as well. It's not just as being the Messiah and the Christ, but also of the servant that Isaiah spoke of that in Isaiah 53, 12, describes him, he will divide him a portion among the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is connecting those two things which nobody in Judaism had done before to connect the idea of the Messiah was the suffering servant. And as Jesus had said, his being handed over, his suffering, his death, were necessary. All of the Old Testament pointed forward to it. The sacrifices, the rituals, and the New Testament describes how we should respond and live in light of the Christ event. That by faith in Christ we are united with him in his death. That the old self is put to death. That we are raised to newness of life with him. And given that nobody comes to the Father other than by faith in Christ and his death, it's no wonder that Jesus doesn't just do this as a once-off. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Keep, keep on doing this in remembrance of me. This is central. This is the, the central heart and focus of the scriptures and the plan of God for redemption. This is to be repeated. Now, depending on your church background, you'll have very different experiences of how often that is to be repeated. You'll go some places where it's repeated every single week, somewhere it's every second week, once a month, sometimes once a year or a couple of times a year because the Bible never specifies how regularly 
It just simply says, as often as you do it. But it's given the centrality of the Christ event. It's important that we do it regularly. And as we remember his death, our sin, our guilt and shame, dealt with by his perfect sacrifice. And by his resurrection power, we live and we eagerly await our Saviour. And thirdly, it speaks of his grace. What might seem a little strange to a casual reader of Mark chapter 14 is you've got this wonderful picture of what Jesus is about to do, this great sacrifice for the benefit of sinful mankind. And then you look at the surrounding events and think, I don't know if they deserve that. Immediately before Jesus speaks about his great sacrifice symbolised in, in this bread and in this wine, before he does that, he announces that one of his closest 12 is going to abandon him, going to betray him to death. Immediately after this, he tells Peter that you're going to deny me. When he's arrested, all of the 12 depart from him and flee. If this was you or I, we'd be tempted to say, no way, I'm not going through all that for you guys. However, as the author of Hebrews says it, puts it this way, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Even knowing exactly the nature of the heart of those who are around him and those even far worse, it brings the Lord Jesus joy to bring about reconciling sinners to God. If Jesus only desired to save a people who were good enough, none of us would even get a look in. But the other side of the good news is that nobody is too evil that they cannot come to Jesus for that very same salvation. His sacrifice was perfect, complete, once and for all. For the person who's grown up and just has always been considered the really nice, good person every day of their life, Jesus died to reconcile them to God. To the person you think is the pit of the earth, the worst person you've ever met, Jesus died that if they too would repent and come to faith in Christ, they would know his salvation. So if you've been putting it off, placing your trust in Jesus, thinking, oh, my life's not quite up to scratch to get to that point, let's remember what Paul says to the Romans. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Not only does Paul highlight that Christ died for us while we were still sinners, while we were still living as enemies of God, he uses that to highlight if God will do that, 
if he will give the life of his one and only son while we were living as enemies, how much more can we be sure that he will do all that he promises for those he calls his beloved children? Now these historic events taking place at the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, both at a time when they were recognising a lamb, the blood of a lamb that saved a people from death, at a time when they are remembering how God had set a people free from slavery to make them his own possession. In that setting, Jesus institutes communion to remind us of his death, his resurrection, which is the perfect fulfilment of both of those former elements. By Jesus' death, we are set free from an eternal death. We're set free from his punishment. We're set free from the wrath of God. And we are set free from a slavery to sin, Satan, and the desires of our own flesh in order that we might be his own treasured possession. He did all of this for a people like you and I who were sinners, who were living as enemies of God. Now when I say living as enemies of God, I mean by asserting that I am the ruler of my life, I don't need God, we are living as enemies of the one who created us, who sustains his creation, has given us every single thing that we've ever enjoyed. I don't need to know what anybody has done to be able to promise that he can do that for you as well. I don't need to know to what extent your past history looks like. All I need to know with absolute assurance is what Christ has done to deal with sin once and for all. You can have absolute assurance if you come to him in repentance and faith you will be reconciled to him who were once enemies. And if you were reconciled to him while you were living as enemies of Christ, how much more will you be saved by his life as his beloved children? And then lastly, let's not forget all of this happened at a time that onlookers would have been looking at these events thinking, this is chaotic. This is out of control. However, when we look at the details, we see God is in sovereign control over every little minute detail. And as certain as we are that he has set us free from sin and death, we can be equally certain that he has set us free from hopelessness and from fear of our circumstances and our future. We don't need to know how he's working in the present situation to know what he's doing, but we do need to know he is working in all circumstances. We look back to the cross, have assurance that our sins have been dealt with once and for all, but it also causes us to look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb when we'll be gathered around his throne, enjoying his presence forevermore with absolute certainty, if he was on our side, 
if he gave his life while we were enemies, how much more will he provide abundantly by his life and his grace? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for reminders of little details, things that sometimes we may not pick up on a, on a quick reading, of just how you are so intimately involved in little steps, little steps which from an outside perspective might look like things are going backwards or a failure. But you were carrying out your good and perfect purposes. Lord, we know one day we'll be able to, or certainly when we're in your presence, we'll be able to look back even on the days in which we live in now and know how and why you're allowing things to go as they are. But Lord, we don't need to know how you're working things. What we do need to know is that you are the sovereign Lord and King of all of your creation, that you can be trusted in every aspect of life. We thank you that you paid the great sacrifice to deal with mankind's biggest problem. You have set us free from sin, death and Satan by the perfect shed blood of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.